Welcome to the BIV Today podcast. I'm Kirk LaPointe. I'm Haley Wooden. On today's show, we're sitting down with Dan Sutton, the founder of Maple Ridge-based medical cannabis producer Tantalus Labs. The province unveiled its cannabis legislation last week. He's going to break down everything from the challenges with BC's retail and distribution model to friction between the province and municipalities over things like dispensaries. And later on in the show, Craig Patterson, the editor-in-chief over at RetailInsider.com, will join us for a regular segment where he analyzes some of the biggest news in the retail sector. On today's show, we'll talk to him about the soaring cost of gas in Vancouver, as well as why Amazon Prime is hiking its membership rates in certain countries. Welcome to the show. The B.C. government has recently unveiled long-awaited recreational cannabis legislation. New details have emerged about how retail and distribution are going to work in the province. Joining us, as he does on a regular basis, is Dan Sutton, founder and managing director at Tantalus Labs, which is a Maple Ridge-based medical cannabis producer. Dan, thanks for coming in. Thanks so much for having me. So it's, uh, it's, uh, it's time for recreational cannabis. Is this a good recreational context that has been created? Uh, I, I think it's largely positive. And, and the fact that we are legalizing cannabis in general is just such an amazing piece of social progress. I, I, there was an article yesterday suggesting that the energy sector and the cannabis sector on the uh, junior markets in Canada have have officially flipped uh, <laughs> in, in terms of productivity. There are a few you know, key aspects to British Columbia's specific legislation that are largely concerning. and uh, and And so I think that this is really important to recognize that this is our first iteration. This is step one, and we are going to need to iterate over time. Yeah, even the premier seemed to think that this was, you know, this was going to be, you know, version 1.0. Hmm? Sure, they're they're absolutely going to learn relatively rapidly. I just hope that you know some of the more core contexts, such as the monopolistic style of distribution that we have, uh, completely operated by the British Columbia Liquor Distribution Board. Uh, that that doesn't become too entrenched for us to be able to evolve, hopefully, into a more diversified and, and uh, market-segmented set of opportunities for distribution from entrepreneurs. What does that mean for businesses in this space? How disruptive is that going to be? Well, my understanding of the BCLDB is that they are looking for quite a healthy piece of margin to be able to provide a service that ultimately producers could provide themselves. And that, I think, is the, the greatest concern. You know, as a licensed producer, I deal with tens of thousands of end use points when I deal directly with my end user through the Canadian medical system uh, selling through an e-commerce platform. So I think it's well within my scope of execution to be able to uh, deliver to say several hundred retailers. Sell direct. Yeah. Absolutely. Sell direct. I mean, what do you, what do you think it's going to do though to pricing uh, or, or to competitiveness if you have this one outlet that is uh, domineering? Uh, it, it certainly will increase prices over time because you're adding in a margin layer of distribution that is uh, necessarily, you know, not necessary uh, in in terms of producer delivering to end user without the uh, the eventuality of deadweight. So loss. you can get all the safety, all of the science, all of the other things that are so necessary now in terms of this new regime inside the traditional distribution system that's been there for medical marijuana. Absolutely. There, there's no quality assurance enhancement from an intermediary such as a provincial monopoly. There's there's no added layer of safety or tracking that we couldn't provide ourselves. And the real problem is that uh, based on my conversations with other licensed producers, the BCLDB is really looking for bargain bin prices. They think that the best way for them to be able to outcompete the black market is to buy 
is by pricing lower than the black market prices. But ultimately, the reality is that these black market growers aren't going anywhere. They actually would would want to move over to the regulated schema if we are able to offer them an avenue to do that, but only if it makes financial sense. So better prices being paid to the producer is actually a more effective economic incentive to reduce the size of the black market by regulating it versus uh, try to outbid them uh, because they will always be more competitive. They don't have to pay tax. They don't have to pay a distributor necessarily. And so the the black market is, is going to dig in its heels. Right. Are there going to be challenges on the storage side of things? So working with an intermediary, figuring out how much you need to produce, how much is going to be stored and potentially product going bad? Uh, I think there's, you know, essentially logistical complexity to any storage mechanism, whether you're storing at the producer's facility. We, we have, you know, very advanced vaults and high security storage systems already at our facilities, as do all other licensed producers, uh, or, or storing at some, you know, intermediary warehouse. It, it, it won't really make much of a difference. What's kind of perplexing to me in a couple of cases is, uh, first of all, the maximum amount that you appear to be able to have in your household, but also uh, what you can probably sell at the place. We were talking about this last week with someone where we were saying, well, what what if you're having a big birthday party and um, you're inviting 25, 30 friends over? Um, do you have to like bring buddies to go and buy your party favors? Or <laughs> what's the, whereas before I can, I can go buy like five cases of wine and we're good for that. Yeah, absolutely. I, I mean, you're referencing the maximum household storage uh, obligation of 30 grams, which is about an ounce of cannabis. So if I have an ounce of cannabis and I'm going to my friend's house and they have one gram of cannabis, I'm de facto over that limit. Uh, and I, I think that just speaks to a, a broad swath of the obligations in this new Bill 31, which is British Columbia's legalization bill that are ultimately unenforceable. It's just so difficult for you to be able to go and audit every home grow and say, can I see this from every angle on the street if I can? Well, that's the which, other provision right? that, right. that you have to hide your plants. Uh, they can't be visible from the street. So if you have a balcony, I don't know what you're supposed to do. You're supposed to shroud the balcony, I guess, right? Absolutely. And I mean, there's a whole host of things that will be very difficult to enforce. I'm a renter in the city of Vancouver, and uh, my strata prohibits consuming cannabis or tobacco uh, at my apartment, and then so do my landlords. So I actually can't consume cannabis at my apartment. I can't consume cannabis in a public place, and we don't have any lounges or or any kind of uh, cannabis consumption areas that are designated by the government. I also can't really be stoned in public, according to Bill 31. So if, if say, I had a medical obligation to consume cannabis, I, I basically am out of luck. And if I'm a recreational consumer, there's nowhere for me as a renter to actually be able to consume it. We're speaking to Dan Sutton. He's the founder and managing director at Tantalus Labs. When we look at what is emerging federally and provincially, when it comes to promoting your own brand, we know there will be BC cannabis stores. How easily is it going to be for businesses to try and distinguish themselves and communicate to users what their product's all about? It's going to require a lot of creativity. And and I know that there are sort of franchising and merchandising Uh, specialists that are working with the BCLDB on helping figure out how to create sort of sections or designations of products that will drive users as well. Education at that front end level, you know, who are the producers? 
if, if you have a, an operator of a, a store that sells cannabis that can effectively articulate the backstory of a producer like Tantalus Labs, that's going to be our best aspiration for differentiation at that storefront level. But it's all about how you go and, and touch a broad swath of your audience with, I think, a cultural value system. And that will be very complicated and difficult without the use of traditional advertising methods, which are all prohibited. What can you do? Um, well, we can operate a website. So if we are driving traffic to a Tantalus Labs site, we can talk about how our product is grown, where it was grown, are the production methods clean, quality assured, sustainable, all of these things that hopefully will start to drive a purchase decision. But to me, there's, there's no silver bullet here. What has driven excellent brands, you know, since the history of Commerce has always been word of mouth. And ultimately, mm. if you have a good solid product, it's what's within that, albeit very limited differentiation in packaging that is going to drive the success of your company. I look around anytime at a grocery store, a BC liquor store, people have their phones out and they're either price comparing or they're doing background research. Do you think that's sort of maybe a saving grace that people will be on their phone Googling, say, a company like yours while they look at different products? That's rated. Absolutely. That's right. <laughs> and there are a host of um, offerings, I guess, ancillary offerings that are attempting to become the Yelp of cannabis or mm. the Google of cannabis, where you can go out and, and rate one strain against another based on user reviews. Um, but we'll see how effective that is, because as with Yelp, there are also concerns around how those services monetize and do you have to pay them kickbacks in order to stack at the top of the list? Uh, I'm not trying to uh, lob a softball question at you, Dan, but I was at uh, lunch the other day and I was talking to a couple of people who were of a certain age and they said, uh, you know, when it's legal, they're lawyers. When it's legal, uh, I'm going to try it. I'm going to try it. But they have no idea where to start. This is going to be common. Absolutely. And I, I guess my advice to your audience is, first of all, start with low THC levels. THC is definitely the compound in cannabis that is most likely to elicit an inebriating or psychoactive effect. Um, but also, I, I think it depends what your audience is looking for. If they're looking for something that's clean, that's pure, that has a transparent supply chain, maybe that's locally grown, there are going to be a diversity of options out there. And it's all about going into a store and just letting your instincts guide you. Good marketers know how to how to train their products into people's instinctual insight. And I, I think that that's going to be really critical. Or you can go to TanelSlabs.com yeah, yeah, and provide yeah, I know, a variety I know, I know of different... I knew it was doing that. <laughs> There are, for every detail that emerges about what this is going to look like in Canada, there are so many questions federally, provincially, and municipally. What do we know at this stage about what the relationship is going to be between the province and municipalities? Municipalities are going to wield a lot of power, and they're going to be able to dictate how many and if any stores. Yeah, they can say no flat out. They can say completely no. And I think it's really important that we all send the message to those municipalities that ultimately saying no to retail cannabis stores is saying yes to illicit cannabis dealers. People in every municipality across BC are consuming cannabis today, and you can make it difficult for them to access legal cannabis, or you can make it easy for them to access legal cannabis. And that also comes with a host of economic benefit. There, those stores will employ people. Those stores will have economic spillover effects. And uh, saying no to cannabis stores is not saying no to cannabis. Just don't say no. Is that the thing? Yeah. Uh, they, um, uh, timelines. Timelines are, are, I think, a little on the vague side. Uh, we're starting to hear that maybe it's like late September now, early October. So even when you get a legalization date, when do you think there are outlets? I mean, is this something that will happen 
before Christmas? That's a great question. And I, I, if I was going to speculate, I'd say probably not. I think that the pinch point is actually not the federal government's, you know, legislative timelines, which although they have been slightly protracted, have been pretty on point, you know, for the last almost year and a half. It's actually the BC provincial government and the LDB acquiring leases, going out to set up these stores, private stores setting themselves up. Uh, and the government of BC has also suggested that they will be uh, launching an e-commerce platform as well. So I think it's very likely that we will see an opening of e-commerce before we see any physical stores. They will use the traction metrics from that e-commerce platform to dictate the rollout of stores. Uh, but yeah, as aggressive as they can possibly be, we're not going to see cannabis retail outlets conveniently located in every municipality in, in British Columbia for, for any time soon. You don't think there'll be uh, like cannabis stocking stuffers this year? <laughs> There will be cannabis stocking stuffers available at TatalistLabs.com. Yeah, okay. <laughs> how, how did I fall into that one twice? Okay. Dan, as always, thanks so much for joining us on the show. Thanks so much. That's Dan Sutton, founder and managing director at Maple Ridge-based medical cannabis producer, Tantalus Labs. Next up is Craig Patterson, the editor-in-chief of Retail Insider. Toys R Us Canada has a new owner. Gas prices are soaring in Vancouver, unfortunately, and Amazon Prime memberships are on the rise. These are some of the latest headlines in retail that we're going to talk to about with Craig Patterson, Editor-in-Chief at Retail Insider. Craig, thanks for joining us. Thank you for having me. So what's your, uh, what's your 1997 gas price there in Toronto, Craig? <laughs> Oh my goodness. You know, it's funny. I don't drive a car um, and I don't live near a gas station. So I actually don't know, to I think be honest. I have I think to it's walk like, over to the Canadian. It's like a dollar twenty or dollar fifteen oh. or something like that. It's like, it's some. I don't remember the last yeah. time we had a dollar twenty. <laughs> yeah, Here no, I, I was a fetus. I mean, I. <laughs> exactly. No, I think. It's, <laughs> It's a it's a dollar sixty around around that here. Like it's within a penny or two of that. It makes you rethink your transportation options just a little bit. Yeah. What at what start point start siphoning off gas from your neighbor? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> at what point do you think people start to make different decisions, Craig, when gas prices are at a buck sixty? Oh, I think people are doing it now. I'm hearing about people going down to Bellingham, those that have the time and the means to get over the border to buy gas. I think somebody I saw on Facebook posted that they were paying a dollar seventeen. Um, in the U.S., you know, in Canadian dollars all in when you do the conversion. So that's quite a huge difference, I think, that's paying for their trip basically to go down there. Uh, yeah. Again, you know, provided the person doesn't earn $500 an hour, uh, you know, it wouldn't make sense in that case. No, but, I, 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 saw somebody, uh, I saw somebody on TV the other day saying, uh, you know, I'm prepared to actually wait in line at the border for 45 minutes to go down and, wow. and get gas in whether it's Point Roberts or uh, Blaine or uh, – Wow. Any of those places, because I'm going to save $35 or $40 a tank because, you know, they have big mm -hmm. trucks or whatever. Yeah. I mean, that's where we've come. That's where, mm -hmm. that's where it's changed our behavior. That's interesting. Do you think this will, it, it'll increase or the conversations people have around, say, electric vehicles, Craig, maybe considering paying a little bit more for an electric vehicle, given the way gas prices are performing? At some point, um, I think that, you know, electric vehicles are still new even in British Columbia. And, uh, you know, it'd be interesting to see how widely they're embraced. But I think as gas prices go up, we're just going to be seeing people making, you know, considerations otherwise, you know, for, for other transportation options. I mean, I think it's important. I think it's unfortunate as a society, you know, in certain regions, most regions of Canada, that at this point, 
you know, people have to drive cars or they, you know, they still have a ways to go. And you, in some cases, you can't really fault people because the cost of living, you know, and certainly real estate in the lower mainland is very high. So, you know, some people, if they, you know, have a certain lifestyle they want to maintain, they have to live far away. And it's too bad because it's getting really, really expensive to drive. <laughs> yeah, no, we were getting to the point here in our dispute with uh, Alberta where there was uh, the specter of $2. Uh, gas, mm-hmm. maybe even more. At what point do you think, wow. Craig, it starts to uh, have an impact on what people do in terms of getting in their car and going to shop? You know, do, do, does it mean that they start going online a lot more? Does it mean that they walk have, walk over to a local merchant rather than going into a, a, a far-flung mall? Good question. I think that we're just at that point with the gas prices in the lower mainland. Uh, I think people are considering what they're doing. I mean, if a neighborhood they, a person lives in is walkable, then perhaps going to the local retailer makes sense. Granted, you know, with, with doing the math, going to say a Walmart, uh, you know, you may still save a lot of money even driving there. So, uh, you know, not to knock independent retailers, but in some cases and quite often they're more expensive than, you know, say a Costco. So uh, I think that, you know, people will probably do a bit more of a uh, analysis of, you know, their needs. But I still think that people are going to consider driving. I mean, if they are, if they have that type of lifestyle, they'll be driving, you know, say to their local Costco or Walmart. But those who live in the inner city, Vancouver, I mean, Vancouver has a terrific, uh, you know, urban uh, context, certainly, you know, in its downtown core and immediate areas. And you already don't really have to worry so much about these gas prices at this point. But it's going to make things more expensive in terms of deliveries and whatnot. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. We'll have to, you know, also you know, pay, you know, gas for transportation. Yeah, which is a nice segue into the Amazon Prime. <laughs> increase in the United States maybe coming here. Um, what um, what do we make about this? Is, is this just a fact of life that Amazon Prime is, you know, is, is reaching its point where it, it was not making sufficient money to pay for all of this expedited shipping? I think that's part of it. Uh, it's expensive to ship. If you think about it, uh, you know, making deliveries to, you know, one house and then another and another is quite inefficient and, you know, costly, especially as gas prices are higher. So, uh, <laughs> perfect uh, segue. And uh, I think in the case of Amazon, it's a couple of things. I mean, this is definitely a revenue tool. Uh, given how many people, holy cow, uh, Jeff Bezos announced over 100 million people globally. We don't know the breakdown, but 100 million people are, are prime subscribers. I mean, that's that's incredible. So this is, you know, if you do the math, this is a huge revenue generator. If most of those people uh, continue to subscribe to Prime, which I also think this is a bit of a uh, test. We're seeing, you know, how elastic... Uh, the pricing is, uh, you know, within the prime model. And uh, I suspect that given habits have been created uh, amongst consumers that subscribe to prime, uh, that they will pay this higher amount of money. Uh, I mean, typically a prime subscriber is not a low-income household. So I don't think this is actually even going to be much of a ding for for most households that are already subscribing to prime. I think that the convenience is going to be the most important part at this point. So if we look at this as being a bit of a test from Amazon, does that mean we can expect additional price hikes in the future if no one decides to cancel their membership? Probably. Uh, I don't know quite how high they would go. I think that, you know, part of Amazon's value proposition is to, you know, give good value. So I don't think we're going to see a thousand dollar prime anytime soon. But, um, you know, perhaps incremental increases would be in the works. But I think, you know, that would only be to a certain level. I mean, at some point, people are going to say no. Uh, So I think, you know, if the consumer is able to do the math, and there's, uh, you know, a better deal than Prime in the future, then, you know, consumers are going to do that, you know, probably seek that out. But 
um, one of the best things Amazon has done is it's created habits. Uh, you know, once yeah. you get in the habit of doing something, you're most you're more likely to continue doing it. And in this case, you know, I know friends and family who, uh, you know, they've got things in automatic order, be it toilet paper, pet food, you know, certain items that you typically run out of and you know, want to automatically refresh without having to make that special trip all the time. It's great for people that are quite busy and. You know, those that are quite busy often earn quite a bit of money and uh, not always, but earn quite a bit of money. And, you know, this increase is really nothing. Now, plus, uh, Amazon has been very clever. Uh, obviously, it, it, it unfurled its own video line, uh, its original series, original movies, those types of things. And it has credit cards that uh, that give you uh, a lot of discounts. Uh, you can get some points and those kinds of things. I mean, it really has, uh, I think, stitched up the consumer in, in a really spectacular way. Um and it sounds like uh, it, the consumer more or less loves what Amazon does. <laughs> it seems that way. I mean, 100 million subscribers can't be wrong. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, that's a good way of putting it. We're speaking to Craig Patterson. He's the editor-in-chief over at Retail Insider. In Canadian news, Toys R Us Canada has a new owner. That's Toronto-based Fairfax Financial. The Canadian arm of Toys R Us has performed much more strongly than the U.S. counterpart. What do you think the strength of the brand is at this stage, and what do you think we can expect from the new owner? It's interesting. I mean, I think we're sort of at this crossroads where we're not sure what Fairfax has planned for Toys R Us. Uh, Toys R Us obviously has the benefit of having name recognition. Uh, you know, it's even had jingles over the years. Jingles are actually a great way to get a name known, <laughs> especially if a person has a musical mind. But Toys R Us, you know, has that name. However, uh, I also think it's a concept that never really lived up to its potential. I think that Toys R Us could be a lot more experiential and I would hope that Fairfax, if they do plan on running Toys R Us as an actual, you know, toy retailer and aren't just interested in the real estate or otherwise, you know, I'm sure Fairfax will retain some exceptional consultants uh, or, you know, they themselves or public consultants will, you know, devise a strategy to make Toys R Us even more interesting, better and exciting. And uh, if you think about it, I mean, they should be having gaming competitions. They should be having, you know, store activities. They could be sponsoring different events. I mean, I think Toys R Us has missed the boat in terms of they just were really putting toys on shelves and selling them. And, and for a retailer is potentially experiential with Toys R Us. It's quite surprising that they operated as long as they did. Hmm. They obviously felt, though, that just by stocking um, toys, that uh, they were keeping their costs down that come with those experiential displays. I mean, there are lots of amazing American stores that I've been into where, I mean, most of the floor space is given over to the experience. Hmm. And it seems like precious little to the actual uh, stockpiling of of toys. Uh, Are we entering this period, do you think, where pretty well all department stores are going to have to have this experiential experience? I think to a degree. I mean, department stores are otherwise, uh, you know, Hudson's Bay stores, uh, you know, a couple of the flagships are pretty decent, but, you know, the stores have, I think, languished overall in terms of their experience. And I think that's the case for a lot of larger format stores. Uh, You know, consumers aren't buying in department stores like they used to. Department stores were very, you know, historically, they were the place that a person went to shop for all their needs from groceries to fashion. And, uh, furniture, et cetera. Now there's so many specialty retailers out there. And, you know, unless a department store can do it, say, a Selfridges is done in London or, you know, a gallery in Lafayette in Paris. These are, you know, they are kind of entertainment centers that are stores. And uh, I think, I mean, an interesting retailer that's looking to come to the West Coast is Nation's, uh, it's Nation's Experience or Nation's Fine Foods. It's, I think they're expanding their name. But what they are is basically an enter a large format entertainment complex that also has groceries, they lease out space to other retailers. 
Uh, and by the way, if retailers are interested, contact me because I can get you in. It's, <laughs> it's, I think it's a really fascinating concept. They've opened their first uh, experience center in Toronto. And I met with uh, the founder and, and he says he wants to move this experience center. And he says it's profitable because the entertainment drives traffic into the center and therefore drives sales in the areas that actually sell. Yeah, so it's almost Product. it's almost like uh, the Grand Bull Island uh, market where you've mm. got this mixture of uh, entertainment and um, and lots of shopping. Yeah, Grand Bull Island actually is an ecosystem, a retail ecosystem that works quite well. Uh, I mean, it, it could improve, but it's uh, it's not a better example certainly in the Lower Mainland. Uh, Nations takes things one step further. You know, they've got kids' play areas, party rooms. Uh, uh, games arcade, uh, you know, it's kind of a bit of a West Edmonton Mall's hybrid grocery store. It's mm-hmm. uh, it's quite unusual, but it's actually a fun experience, and the, and the prices are great, and the food actually looks pretty good too. I toured the whole place, and I was impressed. There you go. You get you there, spending time. You get hungry. You never leave. Everything's there. That and you, you might never possibly want. spend some money. <laughs> <laughs> That's yeah, the there's a food hall where you can eat. Like it's great. And I mean, food, clean washings. These are all things that you know are going to keep people uh, in a place a bit longer and to spend more money. There you go. Craig, as always, really appreciate you coming on to give some insight into the latest retail news. Thanks for joining us. Thank you for having me. That's Craig Patterson joining us from Toronto. He is the editor-in-chief at Retail Insider. Thanks a lot for listening today. We'll see you tomorrow here at BIV Today.